Hello, blip heads. This is your intrepid host, George, reporting from vacation on M. Night Shyamalan's The Beach That Makes You Old. There's no way for me to edit out here, and also, I don't feel like it. So while I take a short break, please enjoy this great episode of It Pod To Be You, where former guest Manish Mathur and I talked about Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. We'll be back next week with a PA classic, Dawn of the Dead, 1978, as chosen by Twitter's Uwe Bollocks, a.k.a. Soundtracker host Eric Peacock, assuming I don't die of old age on this beach. See you then. It had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. I'm in love with Could you. make me be true. Of it. Could the magnificence that comes out of your eyes and your voice and the way you stand there and the way you walk. Lit from within, Tracy. It had to be you, wonderful you. It had to be you. Hello, romantics. Welcome to A Pod to Be You, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and we have very exciting special guests, uh, the hosts of the best little horror house in Philly, George Heffler. How are you? Hello. Very glad to be here. Demonstrate that I'm not just a one-genre pony. <laughs> Honestly, though, like sometimes whenever I talk about it, we'll be on a different podcast that's not romance. I'm like, yay, different, like some variety, some, you know... Yeah. Um, everyone everyone only recommends me horror movies these yeah, days. So I'm like, exactly. I love everything. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Uh, that's, that's very funny and very true for me as well. Uh, well, honestly, I'm glad to um, have you on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of A Little Horror House in Philly. Uh, I've been listening. I mean, I told you on your on your episode that I was just on, like, listen to it for a while. And you're, you're a great host. So I'm really glad to have you on here as well. Thank you. Hopefully I will be as good a guest. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, would you like to introduce the film for us today? Sure. We are talking about the 1968, uh, Franco Zeffirelli, right? That's his name. Uh, yeah. I forgot his first name. <laughs> I always just call <laughs> it the, the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet. Um, very, very fun movie, and, uh, you know, it's about as classic a love story as it gets. You know, you had mentioned when we were kind of going over, uh, what movie to pick, um, you had mentioned that you're a big fan of William Shakespeare, uh, controversial opinion. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) What a hack. Um, but, um, so, what's your favorite, you know, adaptation, or what's your favorite play, and, like, what's your, what's the history there? Wow, great question. Um... Tough to say what my favorite adaptation is. Uh, let me think. I'll come to that one second. I think my favorite play of his um, is probably Hamlet. Mm-hmm. I something about that moody Danish bastard really <laughs> just uh, just connects with me. I think it's it's a lot of fun. I think that even though it is a tragedy, that it you know has some of the classic Shakespeare humor to it. Um, and I think that it does lend itself to pretty good adaptations. You know, I really like Macbeth, but I always feel like when I watch a Macbeth movie, I'm left wanting more. Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe that's just one that works better on stage for me. But Hamlet, I think, does really lend itself to um, to the screen. And I guess um, <laughs> this might be a bit of a cop-out to be like, oh, my favorite adaptation is The Lion King. But, like, I mean, it's <laughs> Hamlet, and it's a great movie. My, I'll say my favorite, like, real 
straight up adaptation is probably uh, Hamlet to like the 2001 with Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the way that it brings classic Shakespeare into modernity. Obviously, I love the Baz Luhrmann Romeo plus Juliet as well, doing a lot of the same stuff. But it, first of all, again captures the the humor in Romeo plus Juliet, um, whilst well, and that helps people connect to it. But also, I think that it does demonstrate that these are timeless stories, that the fact that it is uh, the text of it is kept the same and just the environment around it is updated, I think really speaks to how how quality the actual writing is and and the storytelling at its core. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I feel like you can put Shakespeare, not only just the narrative, but also the dialogue in kind of any setting, whether it's period accurate or a modern retelling or, you know, or anything in between, I think it works because I agree the stories are really strong. And, you know, I mean, he, you know, Shakespeare, I think, like, created a lot of um, kind of standard, like the story beats that we think of as standard. Um, Right. (laughs) Especially, you know, a movie like Romeo and Juliet or a play like Romeo and Juliet, which... I mean, it's it's hard to even. Um, it's become such a like trope to be like this is a Romeo and, Jet st- Romeo and Juliet story, so um, and it's instantly recognizable that kind of you know um, that kind of like tension or that structure is so recognizable that you know you could do you could do I think that you could do like any Shakespeare play and just kind of like it's instantly recognizable as like that. As, as like a Shakespeare work, even yeah. if it's like as far removed from Shakespeare as you know as one can imagine. Um, yeah, I remember recently yeah. even just watching The Northman, and the it's based on the original Norse story that um, <laughs> that Macbeth is, or no that Hamlet is based on, and it was wild like watching it and being like, is this? am I watching Hamlet right now? (laughs) And then looking it up afterward and being like, oh yeah, like seeing the way that it has that legacy and just the way that Shakespeare's stories in particular have really, I think, permeated our our zeitgeist. You know, I think that it is really something special. Yeah, yeah. The the day that I realized that Hamlet is Hamlet but with the age of the beginning, I was like, that's such an obvious, like, I mean, like, I know it's it's mind blowing, even as obvious as it is. Yeah, and it's like, wow, Bill, you really you really thought up a. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's you really uh, stretched your imagination for that one. Um, <laughs> he, was, he wasn't feeling it on that one. He said, "Let's just <laughs> yeah. throw it uh, throw it in the beginning." Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I love so many adaptations. I mean, Ran is amazing. Yeah, um, even like uh, Scotland, PA, the like version of Macbeth that that's probably my favorite Macbeth, where they are. Uh, like running a McDonald's stand-in, and that is like the kingdom instead. Oh, that's <laughs> it's really just, cool! It's very fun. I got to seek that out. Yeah, I mean, so you can do cool stuff like that, and it still works. Mm-hmm. Um, you can turn the tragedies into comedies, and the comedies into tragedies. And I think, like, yeah, I I also feel that like it's really important to like do that kind of thing because like Shakespeare gets taught in like almost every English class, you know, across middle school and high school, like, 
you know, to kind of go back to Romeo and Juliet, I, you know, I read Romeo and Juliet like three times, you know, for a specific class, once in like seventh grade, once in high school, and once in college. Um, and uh, I, I had like different interpretations of it each time. Where like, when I was in high school, I think I was like, this is the greatest love story I've ever heard. You know, like I was like, you know, this is, you know, this is really, like, this is it. And then in, I think in middle school, I don't think I really had, I don't think I really understood it. I think I just kind of like skipped the balcony scene, you know, <laughs> and all the famous parts. Uh, but in college, my professor, um, she like really introduced me to kind of like a new interpretation of Roman Juliet. And um, one that I really think feels connected to the Zeffirelli film adaptation, which we'll get into. Um, but what's your what's your history with Roman Juliet? Like, did you read it? In, in school or in college? Yeah, so I was in the theater uh, club in uh, in high school. So yeah, I read it in in an English class, and then also we watched this movie in drama. And so you know, it's funny that like I think that this movie in particular. I mean, any kind of I, I have a tough time. Uh, breaking movies into pieces. I, I think that it's a lot harder to get everything out of a movie if you're constantly yeah. getting up and walking away. To say nothing of the fact that you have it split into three 50-minute chunks or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Last three days in a row. I just feel like it's like the worst possible environment to absorb what's happening in the movie. Yeah. And so I thought Romeo and Juliet was like fine. You know, I, I thought that it was romantic, but when I came back to this movie after high school and, and watched it again, um, I got a lot more out of it in terms yeah. of really understanding, like, how young these kids are and the fact that, they, it, like, it's so easy to get swept up in the love story of it and to be like, wow, it's so incredible, but they're willing to throw it all away for love. But then now, especially as an older person, you go, this is stop and think for literally one second. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone stops and thinks for even one second, basically nothing in this movie happens. And I and I think that just it's such an interesting way. A lot of the adaptations don't really lean on the heat wave aspect of it either. And I think that that also plays a lot into it that. Um, in terms of like why I came back to it and, and started to enjoy it more and more is that you kind of understand like, oh, tempers are flaring and people are irritable and passions are high because it's like 100 degrees out. And yeah, you can kind of reassess the environment that everything is taking place in in a way that um, I think definitely benefits it. And so – I think that Romeo and Juliet is a movie that does benefit from coming back to it and also a little more of a remove from or a little more experience under your belt. Yeah, yeah, I I really agree. So in college, uh, Professor Bly, she was one of my favorite professors I've ever had. Um, and uh, when we read Romeo and Juliet for her class, I was kind of like, you know, this is such a like, this is a high school play. This is like a middle school play. Like, why am I in college as, like, an English minor reading Roman Juliet again, you know, like, what is there more to gain from it? Right. And, you know, I was, like, what, 19, 20 at the time, what did I know about anything? Um, but, you know, 
she was she really broke down in the play like how um exactly what you're saying that like Romeo and Juliet are so young and they're so reckless and you know Romeo is kind of being made fun of a lot in the early scenes for him being this like you know um you know hard on the sleeve romantic type that's like kind of like will like put his heart on line for like any woman who looks at him <laughs> and that you know if it wasn't Juliet that night it might have been someone else you yeah. know and I think at least his actions would be very similar um, and that, you know, Juliet also is very, like, a, li- a lot of her actions seem to be, like, more of, like, rebellious and just, like, trying to break away from her own family and that, you know, the part of, like, like, this professor, she really highlighted just, like, this, not, I hate calling characters stupid because, you know, like, I think we're all kind of stupid in a lot of right. ways, and, yeah. but, like, kind of the, like, recklessness, the, um, impatience the you know all that i think she really brought that out not only in romeo and juliet as characters but you know of course mercutio tybalt you know the montague capulets that feud um even the nurse and the the friar like they all kind of are having a lot of they're having a moment of not really thinking rationally and i i agree that it's the like the heat um I saw this movie like the i watched the this movie again for the podcast like right before i saw the new elvis film and that we also, it's like about like sweat, <laughs> you know, like they, 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 Lorman really like highlights this, like how intensely physical all of his performances were. And so it was, it was kind of interesting. And of course, like I, you know, I'm in New York in the summer, it's like a thousand degrees. So I was, I was really connecting to both movies on a level. Um, but one thing I did notice that I did, I don't think I noticed the first two times I've seen this movie is that like, especially during the like, um, during, like, the sword fighting scenes, everyone is, like, dripping sweat, and, like, clothes are, like, stuck to the bodies. It's a very hot movie, in, like, every definition of the word hot, you know? Um, And uh, I think that definitely, you know, escalates the tension, and the, the, just, like, it's, like, that, like, full moon effect, you know? It's, like, the full, like, sun effect, of just, like, everyone's just, like, going a little crazy. Yeah. Um, And uh, this remind I, th- I think like what you were saying earlier about the heat like this reminds me of like do the right thing you know Definitely. where it's like the heat is a character in the movie because it's like ratcheting up the tension to obscene levels of probably normally like you know chill normal rational people are now acting totally out of character and out of their own interests just because it's like you know 105 degrees or whatever and right, i definitely feel that way situation with, irritable yeah exactly so, and I definitely feel that way about, um, you know, about Roman and Juliet. And I think uh, one thing I really appreciate about this adaptation is that even though, like, for me, it's like the classical, you know, um, Roman and Juliet adaptation, I think it's like definitive, you know, just because like, as much as, I mean, I love the 1986 one, um, but like, that's in modern day, but this is like period accurate costumes and like, everyone looks like their own age and, um of the age of the characters. So it's, uh, to me, this feels, I mean, there's a reason why they show it in schools all the time. Like I watched this in middle school. Um, we watched this Romeo plus Julia and Shakespeare in love. Wow. <laughs> like a lot of sexy movies. Uh, they're watching <laughs> at like 12. <laughs> um, but, uh, during yeah, our like Romeo Juliet's and, age at that point. <laughs> I mean, honestly though, like that's kind of the, the funny thing is that this movie like really shows like how young these kids are. I mean, when I was, 12 i didn't think they were that young they feel they felt older to me 
But now I'm like, oh my god, like I'm like 20 years older than Juliet, which is a crazy yeah. thing to think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's wild. And I mean, you know, she's incredibly young, but it's not like Romeo is a geezer. You know, yeah, he's, like, yeah. he's like 17 or something. I think that the actor was 17 in this. And so it really feels like a sophomore, or not a sophomore, a junior in high school and a freshman in high yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, basically. And I think that just like framing it that way just really alters the way that you view the, the the play and the movie and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you watch it in high school or in school or? Yeah, we did watch it. Uh, like I said, it was it was split into like the three chunks though. So yeah. I was not really getting anything out of it at that point. You know, um, I can understand. I was like, oh, they're trying to give us a little culture here, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it wasn't really doing anything for me at the time. You know, I, ha- I had to come back to it in my own time. I have very vivid memories of our teacher like throwing a sheet over the TV during the nudity. Of course, like, yes. that, it, It's so funny. Like that's like the one thing that like I feel people like talk about with this movie. It's always like, oh, you know, she was like fifteen and like showed her breasts and stuff. But like, first of all, her nudity is very minor, and his nudity is like so much more pronounced and longer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that's a little bit. It's interesting uh, how like you know her her nudity gets more sexualized and like forbidden than his, even though it's, it's almost the same. I I thought that was a surprise to me as well. I also think that hers is, you know, it's, it's in like the post coital, like we're waking up moment, but I don't think that her nudity is really sexualized at all. No, I don't think so either. Especially compared to him where it's like luxuriating in his butt as he's out there. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I, I think it is it is interesting that that has kind of become the talking point about this movie when there's a lot of really great stuff in it. You know, I, I think uh, Michael York in particular. Why is no one talking about Michael York in this movie? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He got some really great performance. Um, what are some like what are your summer fe- like some of your favorite um, scenes in the movie um, or moments or um, lines? Yeah, I really love the. Um, that first fight, to be honest, I think that it's such a great introduction to what the movies can kind of do for it. You know, it really broadens the scale and the scope of the conflict between the Capulets and the Montagues in an interesting way that it's hard to communicate on stage because you only have so much room. You know, yeah. they're taking up the whole square fighting and, and, and stabbing each other and you see people getting carted off, wounded and everything. I think that that first fight is is a really great introduction to the bad blood that is is starting to boil from the heat. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really... Um really well well crafted and definitely um exciting i I think it really you know starts this movie off like real with a lot of excitement and and energy um yeah i i think for me the scene that i like is another this the sword fight between like mercutio and tybalt to me that's just like it's so impressive and I, I really like how it kind of starts off as, like, kind of a joke. Like, they're kind of, like, playing with each other. And then it just gets, like, really serious. And to um, one thing that I really love about Roman and Juliet just as a play is how, like, kind of, like, each event kind of leads to the next one in a really propulsive way. Like, um, you know, it's like Mercutio and Tybalt are kind of fighting. And then it gets serious. And there's, like, a murder that is, like, accidental. But then, like causes this thing of revenge which causes this which causes that and um i think this movie really does a great job of like adapting that 
and having the like tension of the film get really um get, gets really like heightened with each sequence um and each and I feel like it really makes you feel the like danger that Romeo and Juliet are both in and the last act or the last like you know 45 minutes of the film Absolutely I love that moment too and I think especially when he actually kills Mercutio and you can see it's very well communicated that it is really Romeo's fault that he gets yeah. stabbed. Yeah. And they do such a great job of having him feel like he is panicking and pinning it on Tybalt in order to not have to examine his own role in it. Um, that it is a purely guilty desperation that he is accusing him with. Um, yeah. and, and I think that they do such a great job of, of, of making that be clear. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think, um, yeah, I, I think you know with with the uh, I mean, I keep I really feel like the age of the characters feels like a, a huge winning point for me, and and it really um, allow it really has me look at this movie very fondly, just because a lot of this recklessness you can just uh, attach to the heat as you talked about but also just like the youth of these characters like Definitely. you know when like Romeo and Juliet are played by 20 year olds I mean it's kind of a little hard to believe um, although I have seen like adult Romeo and Juliet's in different adaptations and it works because um, the the framing of the love story is, quite, is a little different um, mm. than, than it is in the in the text uh, but here, like, ha- like that's how like a seventeen-year-old would kind of react, which is like, I this is too horrifying for me to like acknowledge my own piece of it. Yeah. So I'm just gonna put it on someone else and then like kill them. And it's just like what you. It's I mean, it's how they grew up. You know, they grew up around feuding and murder and violence. So yeah. why wouldn't that be their first reaction? Yeah, I really think that. Um... Uh, uh, what was the name of the guy who plays Romeo? I I looked it up and I forget. It's oh, Whiting? it's uh, yeah, Leonard um, Whiting or Whitting. I, th- I think it's Whiting. He does such a great job, in particular in the moment where he finds out about the banishment. I thought, especially so. I did also rewatch Romeo plus Juliet, and I, you know, I think that Leonardo DiCaprio does a really great job in it. But comparing these two scenes in particular, like. Whiting is freaking out. He is yeah. throwing a tantrum and screaming about the banishment. It really feels like he's like, mom and dad are going to be so mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. And I just think that that's the real moment of panic and you really feel it. And that's where the authenticity of the ages definitely comes through. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, even going back to back to Juliet, like, um, I, I feel there's always kind of been that like criticism of this play and like West Side Story, which is like, how can Juliet um, slash Maria like, you know, still be in love with someone who killed her own family? And I think again, like, when you reduce the age from you know even as far as like eighteen to like you know fifteen, I think that's like a little bit more believable. I think it's a little bit more like. Um, she doesn't know how to like process this, so she's going to go to the familiar, which is Romeo. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's like also 
I don't know, this movie's, like, really horny in a way that I was surprised by. Because, I, like I said, I didn't... I mean, I had seen this, like, a few years ago, back when I was playing on Netflix. Back when Netflix had, like, real movies on there. <laughs> um, and uh, even then it didn't hit me, but that, like... I feel like there's almost... It's, like, the driving force of, like, everything. Whether Like, just a lot of the tension just comes from this, like, you know, need to, like, release something. And, Definitely. And often, like, you know, that kind of, you know, a repression kind of can lead to, like, violence or either violence or some kind of, like, sexual release. And I think Juliet is, you know, going for the, like, more, you know, or, uh, more, like, sensual kind of release that and Romeo at first goes for, like, the more violent and so do the other boys. And um, I, th- I think, again, it's, like, young, too young to know how to process this level of, like, intense goings-on in their lives yeah yeah i think um olivia hussey as juliet really does a great job you know i think that one of my favorite moments for her in particular that does uh demonstrate that sort of impatience uh and childlike aspect is when um she sends the nurse to like go meet with romeo and be like hey what do you think we should do about this and when she's like, oh, my God, the nurse is so slow. <laughs> That's great. That was so funny to me. It's such a great moment. And, yeah. And, you know, again, the heat and, and the youth and it all, like you said, really propels each moment. And and it is like a domino effect. This whole movie is really just one domino after the other in such an interesting and great way. Yeah, I yeah, I, I agree. Um, I feel like Olivia Hussey is so good in this movie. Um, she is, for sure. I think, you know, one thing I read about the making of the film is that, you know, Zeffirelli having these, like, two very young actors who, like, probably aren't, like, Shakespeare trained, uh, he said that one way to kind of um, hide a little of their greenness in in, this, in front of the screen is to um, rely more on their, like, natural body language and, like, facial expressions and reducing some of the dialogue, like, some of like, the long speeches. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I remember reading that, you know, Olivia Hussey had learned this, like, intense monologue for her audition, and then she, when she got to film, she got, realized that it had been cut. And she, I, According to IMDb, she was disappointed by that, which I guess that would be, too. Sure. But went to I, the trouble to learn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, dramatically, it makes a lot of sense because it, it utilizes, I think, their best feature, which is that they have these, like, incredibly expressive faces and these, like, um, just this, like, you know, charisma and, uh, you know, compelling compelling nature to their uh, performances that I feel like it makes sense to really focus on them as, you know, in, in this sort of natural thing rather than trying to get these, like, you know, somewhat inexperienced actors to, like, deliver these really, um, you know, intense dialogue. I mean, I'm sure they could have handled it well, but I think as a filmmaking choice, it's almost better that it's, like, not as reliant on dialogue and more reliant on, you know, sure. body acting. Just because, like, I think, you know, as you were saying about Macbeth, like, theater versus the film, the, like, the theater versus, like, the big screen, it, there's a difference in terms of, like, acting, and I think you really need, like, seasoned actors like Denzel Washington to really pull off, like, this, like, straight delivery of dialogue. Yeah. Um, uh, as he does in, in his version of Macbeth, so... And that's kind of an interesting filmmaking uh, technique that I think really paid off for, for this for this film and the tone and kind of vibe it's going for. 
Yeah, I think the physical performances are great. I think it definitely extends past those two as well. Yeah. You know? um, Paris, I noticed his mouth is open like the entire time he's on screen. <laughs> and it's just really like, you're just like this dude. Like, I totally understand why she's not interested in him. Like, he just seems like a dolt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like that's true for like almost every Paris that comes on. <laughs> Paul yeah, Rudd? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Paul Rudd. Um, yeah, I mean, Paul Rudd's a great choice for that kind of character. <laughs> yeah, very, very dorky and I mean, for sure. he's a great choice for every role he does. Yeah. Uh, he knows what he's, he's doing. He's so, he's so versatile. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think, uh, also, like, regarding the filmmaking, I found the use of locations to be really effective. Um, you know, this was, I think, one... I feel like filming on location got to be more and more popular throughout the 60s, and, and this one using almost all, like, real locations, especially for the outdoor scenes, just... Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes this... It makes the feel, film, films feel more lived in, and I think, you know, period pieces often have trouble kind of making, like, um, kind of making themselves feel very, like, lived in and real and visceral, um, and I think this film does a really great job of, like, feeling like you're, like, right in there. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, there's no substitution for the real thing. As yeah. great as sets can be, uh, you know, going to the real thing is uh, is will always be better in in some way. The same way that practical effects will always be better than CGI, as much as there are uses for it, yeah. where it can be an improvement. I think that like if you're trying to like make a thing as opposed to improving a thing, uh, you know. It, it's just not going to look as good, and and that definitely comes across in the setting of this. I think Verona looks beautiful, and that definitely plays into understanding why he's also freaking out about banishment. Like it's a beautiful city. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you think of the score? I loved it, to be honest. I even wrote down that I really appreciated that the theme plays over the credits again as well. <laughs> I was like, yeah, one more time for the road. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I I totally agree. I, I think the like main love theme is so um, it's so swoony and and but also has that like intensity to it. Um, yeah, it just felt again. This movie just, movie just feels so like classical, and I think for all of its sort of like classicalness, that it has such a like modern kind of you know. Uh, you know, propulsive kind of tone to it, I think mm. it makes it all the more, like, timeless. Absolutely. And I think that one of the other impressive elements of it that does feel uh, very um, workmanship, like, the, or the workmanship of the movie is really impressive to me in the pacing as well. Um, it's not the shortest movie, but I think it does go pretty fast, and having the wedding right before the intermission is I think really spectacular in terms of like giving you something to go out on and then have and being like, Oh, well, what could possibly be left in the next hour? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I haven't read the play in a long time, but um, I imagine the wedding does come that, you know, that much in the middle. And I, I had so totally had that same thought of like, wait, we're going to have a whole hour just for, you know, I guess like Tybalt to be murdered and um, the banishment and the, and the the plot for the uh, poison. I was like, wow, that's. I mean, but it does take an hour, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels very. Um, yeah, I agree. The pacing has is, is really well done, and 
I think um, this movie's about like two hours and 20 minutes or so. Yeah. So yeah, not the shortest movie, but definitely one that feels very quick. And it clips along, for sure. Yeah. I, I also really loved the side characters, did a really great job. You know, we've definitely heaped praise on our, our stars there, but Friar Lawrence, I thought, was really great. Uh, when he's in the crypt, I really mm-hmm. thought that that was really great acting, the I dare no longer stay stuff I thought was great. Um, I also think that the nurse actually making her feel motherly pretty difficult in terms of a lot of adaptations not doing a great job with it for me and i think that the relationship between juliet and the nurse does feel real and lived into me yeah uh, i think that they do a really impressive job with it in this in this adaptation particularly yeah fire lawrence um i'm not really an actor type but uh like i did i did i did acting in high school but in college i tried to like try out for stuff but I wasn't very good compared to, like, actual actors, you know, like, um, who, like, actually, like, studied and practiced it. Like, for me, I just, I did all the theater because, like, we didn't have a lot of boys, so, like, I always got good parts. (laughs) But then realizing, like, I'm actually not that good because compared to, like, all these really talented people. Um, So I never got cast in anything in college, but I remember thinking in high school that if we ever did Romeo and Juliet, I would want to be the friar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a good character, you know. It's a, it's a really fun character. I also love going back to Romeo plus Juliet that they like make him like kind of a stoner in that one. Yeah, like yeah. Weird fun <laughs> fun twist on it. Yeah, yeah. Um and yeah, Patty um Patty Haywood, I believe is her name. Uh wait, let me make sure I got that right. Uh Oh, sorry, Pat Haywood. Yeah, she's incredible and um She's very funny. I actually do like the scene when she goes over to, like, the Montague boys, and they're all kind of teasing her, and it's all very, uh, I mean, I guess it's not nice, you know, but it's all very, like, funny, and, like, there's a little bit of flirtation there. Like, I kind of feel like she's a little, like, excited to kind of be, like, in the presence of all these, like, young boys, and, like, you know, but then also kind of a little irritated by them, because she has this, like, message to give, and, um... (laughs) The bodiness definitely feels like uh, like it's it's up her alley kind of thing. Um, right, yeah. Like but, definitely but she, she enjoys it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I like that and I, I feel like they really give her a lot of like personality and um, I mean the nurse is like also one of those characters that I feel like is very like popular for actors because it's mm-hmm. like funny and they she does have those dramatic scenes and um, I, yeah, I, I, I was, I think I've only seen Romeo and Juliet on stage once in like our community theater. And I, re- I remember the nurse being a very, really like fun, energetic performance from whoever that was. Although there, the main characters were like 30 because it's community <laughs> theater, I guess. Sure. Um, one other scene I did want to uh, touch on, you know, we got to talk about the party. Yeah. Uh, I love Romeo's mask in this i think it's so fun and i think that this kind of like young lion mask really does like a great job of being like a character thing for him as well it's not just a fun mask um it says a lot about him and i think that they do a great job yeah 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 i yeah i agree i think the party scene is uh really fun um and that, like, that first look between them is just, it's electrifying, you know, because of the mm-hmm. chemistry and, like, I mean, this is, t- I mean, this is made by an Italian filmmaker, and uh, I think it's also, uh, its country is listed as, yeah, UK, Italy, so it's, it's technically an Italian film, and... Mamma mia. Yeah, yeah. 
I think like Italian movies of the sixties just had this like sensual and like aesthetic to them. Like you know, like the Fellini stuff, the um you know, and Antonioni, all those guys and Zeffirelli yeah. and Visconti and all the you know, they just like there's something just about it because I think it's like the Technicolor, but it's also feels more like lived in, like it's on all sets, like usual Technicolor movies are. Yeah. So there's just that, like again, it like really brings in that heat, um, and uh, I really just felt that uh, within that first meeting. You know, I mean, she's so beautiful. He's got that great mask. It's like, but yeah. again, like he's like there looking for someone else. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's always that's always funny. That's a great to me. point. Yeah, that is a really great point. I also. I just I think that that's probably my like the in, as far as the dialogue goes probably my favorite part of the play of the movie yeah. whatever you know of course this tête-à-tête between them uh going back and forth with the holy palmer's uh lips and all that jazz you yeah. know it's it's just so classic I, I i everyone talks about the balcony scene and it is really incredible in this but um as for as far as the dialogue goes i don't think it gets better in this play than uh, than the party scene yeah i do love that the two programs line i was going to be so romantic yeah um for I sure john wayne up in here <laughs> 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 um, well, I do want to talk about the balcony scene because uh, yeah. that's always the signature, you know. I mean, you think of, you know, you think of balconies, you think of Rowan Juliet, and like I feel like every like family sitcom in like the '90s had that one episode where like the son does Rowan Juliet on stage, and yeah, you know, there's a, they're always like rehearsing the balcony scene, and like he has to kiss the pretty girl. Um, I think I remember this most from like Home Improvement or I think this might be the Family Ties one too who knows but there's always that like that's that's the iconic scene and again like it's really effective in this movie even though you've seen it a million times you've seen it parodied you've seen it paid homage to you've seen it you know as as a joke or whatever but it's really effective here because these kids are so earnest and they're even if you're kind of like eye roll at how like reckless they are and how like how much they want to just like jump into bed but they can't um even if you make fun of all that i still think that the balcony scene is like really romantic and it's like that that party scene and the balcony scene are like kind of the two times you kind of see this like earnest you know puppy love as innocent as it is you know even if later he kind of loses that innocence as they get really involved in the plot yeah, I think it is really great, and it is really earnest, and you understand why it's been parodied and homaged and everything. Yeah. I think that it, it is really spectacular, and they, they handle it very well, for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was either this, or they would do the Cyrano. <laughs> <laughs> Cyrano, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of those sitcoms would do the, like, real life becomes like the play thing, where, yeah. like, yeah, there's always that the Cyrano effect, too. Oh, God. Yeah. We have to whisper um, to him from off stage. <laughs> yeah, um, I do want to talk a little bit about sort of the poison plot um, and like how that works for you because that's also something that people really kind of point to as like this is almost too contrived. Mm-hmm. But does that play? Does it play that way for you? I think it works for me. You know, I, it's a little fantastical, maybe, and it definitely is uh, reckless as as every action has been. But, um, you know, I think that it just kind of plays into the romance of it where it's like, 
it is a, a very dramatic thing to do <laughs> to yeah. yourself with poison. Um, and, um, you know, I think that the like death's door coma that Juliet is in is like a fun idea. And, uh, you know, I understand that some people get hung up on it and they go, well, how, like, what does this even mean? <laughs> like, how are they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't really bother me that much. You know, I read a lot of fantasy growing up as a kid, so this is like the most minimal buy-in possible needed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I can also imagine um, that, you know, they're so desperate to be together that they have to go through these lanes. I mean, there really is no way out for them, at least, yeah. you know, like... I mean, they both if they both run away together, then they have to do something drastic to kind of get that, um, make that happen. So I don't, I like it a lot. I think there's something so like fantastical about it. There's something so like you know opera tragic about it. Yeah, um, definitely. As far as the actual like beyond just the mechanics of it, I think it's great. I I yeah. love that this is the. It feels like this is the ultimate, the only possible finish that it really could have led to like you were saying you know it every other option has been closed off to them whether it's just because of her father not being willing to see her side and she feels like she can't talk to him whether it's the death of mercutio and tybalt and that going back and forth because they just couldn't let well enough be alone you know the prince has made this decree he's already sort of let it (laughs) let it go once and uh, I really think that there's there's for the story there's not really a lot of a lot of other options in in their mind. The prince is a little yeah. The the prince is a little like I'm gonna wash my hands of this, you know. <laughs> like I'll make a decree, but beyond that, and you know, he takes the you know the Joe Biden approach to ruling. <laughs> um, Everyone but, is no. punished. <laughs> I think, you know, one thing that I really love about Shakespeare is his use of irony, both, like, comic and dramatic irony, and I think the irony of, you know, this miscommunication between Romeo and Juliet, and, you know, him, like, Romeo saying Juliet, you know, apparently dead, and then killing himself, and then, you know, Juliet waking up right then, and then killing herself. I mean, there's something so poetic about it. It's almost beautiful in that, like... Even their last moments on on Earth, they can't they can't be together. Yeah, it, it's the two ships passing in the night, and yeah. I think it is really fun. But it, not fun, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, narr- you know, fun to like, interesting to like explore and think about yes. as a theme. And I will say that I really prefer the Romeo and Juliet like things just happen the way they happen versus the West Side Story like twist of the knife like yeah yeah like oh i'm punishing you and that's that's why this is gonna go wrong um even if she doesn't anticipate it going as wrong as it does yeah um i just think that uh having it be their own sort of desperation leading them to it works for me i yeah i I totally agree um i this i mean I feel like this play... No, I don't remember when I read this for the first time, or even in college, like... I mean, it's hard to imagine because uh, the ending of this play is so well-known that no one really ever really knows the first time they heard it, so... (laughs) But I feel like this play has such a, like, strong, uh, almost oppressive theme of, like, inevitability, as, as we've been talking about, but I think this really... It's sort of a... 
there really isn't only one way the story ends. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's the tragedy of it. And that's the painful part of it is that, you know, this love story, even as reckless or as pure as you might think it is, it could only end in this, you know, ships passing in the night way. And I mean, to me, that makes it really compelling and really interesting, even if you know the ending. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if people are like, spoiler alert, you know, Julia dies. <laughs> but, um, I, but I also think that it's, it's such a, it's the reason why I think this play is so timeless is that the, um, it just seems like from page one, there's only, it could only end in tragedy if by, you know, if it all starts with just like two, you know, servants not even being able to like communicate with each other, then how can these two, you know, teenagers navigate all this stuff that's around them definitely and i mean even in the sort of prologue or whatever framing device where they are talking about hey in fair verona these star-crossed lovers they literally say this will end in death and like you're just you're just waiting for it the whole time you know it's this sort of damocles hanging over you waiting for the other shoe to drop i'm mixing all kinds of metaphors in here (laughs) (laughs) um I, I think that they do such a, a great job of that. And I do think that it is very impactful storytelling. Um, you know, I think that there is something to that in movies like Lamb. I don't know if you saw that one. Um, it It's like very sparse to a fault, I would say. But what is impactful about it is the way that from the word go, you understand sort of the only way that this story can end. And and it does end that way, and it feels good to finally get that closure, even if it is a negative thing happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know Romeo and Juliet absolutely captures that. I think that it is tragic, you know, whether they are reckless and whether they should be having this romance or not. I think that it is kind of a beautiful love story i think that they do love each other for real even if it is just that romeo falls for every girl and even if it is that juliet is pushing back against her father and her family in their own ways they love each other yeah and and i think that that is so important to making this a good and interesting love story yeah i really agree with you um and you know when i was watching this movie uh, over the weekend and kind of just, you know, taking it, taking it in for the purposes of podcasts. Like, I'm realizing how much I love sad endings in, in romance movies. Um, or, like, in a romantic comedy. Like, if, if there's a romantic comedy where the couple doesn't get back together at the end, to me that's almost, like, more a little bit more interesting. That, mm-hmm. like, bittersweet. Or, um, or like, I like to think about, like, You've Got Mail, for instance, which is also kind of a, a Roman and Juliet story in its own way. Um, they that it has a happy ending, but it took a really bittersweet journey to get there, and something that's like feels real and powerful and complicated and messy. Uh, to me, that's more interesting than you know something that goes that goes right or something. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's room for all these kinds of stories, but you know, there's something a little bit more um, compelling to me about like bittersweet and like a little bit of tragic and. I think this movie is bittersweet in a lot of ways because you do, you know even as you're saying even with all sort of like their flaws as characters um, you know they they did have something real for a second there and the ending is so powerful because you know however you know 
however many flaws they had, like, they didn't deserve to, like, have this happen to them, you know? Like, they were just, like, two sweet kids who fell head over heels in a hot second and kind of lost lost their brains for a minute and then had sort of the worst thing happen to them. Um, and there's something sweet about that, in a way, you know? It Absolutely. Me, it makes me feel... I think this ending... I think in all the versions that I've seen, I think this ending always has played really, like... It kind of makes you reflect on what it means to be in love and... You know how even at our stupidest, you know, we all kind of deserve some kind of happy ending. So, yeah, that, I, that was my kind of takeaway. I love that. I think that's a really great observation. And I think that to that point, there's something about the ending not being the romance itself necessarily for for like a sad ending a lot of the times that means that the characters have to kind of be developed a little more in order for it to kind of land somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I know a lot of people push back on 500 days of summer. I understand that the character is not a good person, but I think it is a very interesting ending to have yeah. him not get back together with her and, and to have the ending be like, well, is he going to improve as a person or is he going to sort of fall into the same thing, the same cycle? Um, I just think that it is an interesting movie in addition. I think it is fun, but also I think it is interesting in in that it does play with that. And you might, you might have expected it to lead back into them getting together and living happily ever after. And for them to say, no, that's not the case is, is, is a uh, way more satisfying for me. Yeah, I agree. I like five days of summer. I haven't watched it in a while, but I do remember a lot of, um, I've been reading some tweets from, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt saying, like, you know, if you thought they were supposed to get together, you were kind of watching the movie wrong, because it's really more about, you know, Tom's development, and, you know, the big question, as you're saying, is that, is he going to repeat his mistakes, or has he learned? And I think any time you watch the movie, you might come away with a different interpretation of that question. Um, Yeah. Especially and, you see his arrested development, like compared to his sister, who is way more mature than he is, and he goes to her for love advice and everything. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, it, it's a very interesting question to be like, and one that we need to ask of ourselves all the time is, are we going to repeat the same mistakes? Can we break out of the cycle? Can we even recognize the cycle when it's happening? Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, it, it you know, not to get too personal, but, you know, it's, I've, once you kind of realize your own patterns, like not that it's easy to break them, but you can kind of develop, um, you know, a little bit more inner strength to kind of break out. And it happened with me where I was like, I'm noticing that I'm doing all the same things and nothing's really working for me in the romance department. So what I need to do to like change actively make the choice to change that. And, uh, I think it's powerful. And I, I think the comparison to 500 days of summer is really smart because, I think Tom and Romeo, and maybe even Juliet and Tom as well, like, I think all of them have very similar, you know, personalities and foibles, and um, sort of this idea of, like, being completely just uh, too too eager and too, you know, ready to, like, give your life over to someone, and... uh, without considering, you know, their own... Now, I guess Romeo and Juliet, you know, they wanted the same things. They wanted to be together, but it's a little different there. But I think this, like, you know, young and passionate and dumb and, you know, a little bit kind of selfish, you know, I think it's something to be worth... It's it's always worth exploring to me, you know, with, with a romance movie. Absolutely. 
yeah, I think um, it, it also just like just comparing Romeo and Juliet to more modern, uh, you know, rom-coms or, or rom-droms even, you know, you think like, well, they are young. Who knows what might have happened if this hadn't worked out this way? Yeah. You know, maybe they would have drifted apart or resented each other for having to leave their families or whatever. Leave Verona. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that in in a way, this is sort of hitting that better to flame out than to fade away kind of thing, because who knows what might have happened down the road. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really great point as well. I think, um, I think I was just watching a movie about a couple that like right away together and they just like completely resented each other after. Because it, it's really a lot to give up you know, your family and you know, your home and your friends and your routine. Like... It's really a lot. Um, and uh, I think even someone who is, has a really troubled relationship with their parents, like both Roman and Juliet, I think not having... I mean, especially because they both kind of come from, like, really wealthy families. <laughs> so, I mean, even just kind of being away from that comfort uh, at home, it's hard. It's a, definitely a, a jarring experience. Um, and so I, I agree that there's, there's something most beautiful about having this, like intense passionate romance then never having the opportunity to see it fade away and to grow that resentment you know not that it was not that it's good that they like you know died but <laughs> um there is definitely i think a a relief that they never had to experience sort of the the way that romance kind of you know fades out after a while and that yeah would... and i i think it's also interesting that shakespeare does make sure to be like and also maybe this will improve the relations between their families like yeah. kind of silver lining aspect of it that i think does it's an interesting thing that he feels like he has to soften it and i, I do kind of appreciate it that he's like you know it's not it's not all terrible maybe some good can come of this even though these two children had to lose their lives yeah. um uh, I, I do appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, it, it really does soften the blow, and I think, I think it's like some good should must have must come from this. You know, like if these two poor kids like lost their lives, there has to be some, you know, betterment right. for society and for the culture. Right. And, and like, who Look even knows, like, if that lasts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who even knows that that lasts? You know, like maybe they're peaceful for a year, but then another servant insults another one, and we're kind of back. Yep. Back to square one. Um, I I do want to touch a little bit about um, the other adaptations of the the, the play, since there are so many. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned the nineteen ninety six one. Uh, have you ever seen the one from nineteen thirty six with uh, Leslie Howard and Nora Shearer? No, I thought about getting to it, and I just couldn't find the time. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of fine. Like, they're both good actors, and it's directed by George Kakor, who's, of course, you know, a, a master filmmaker of the era. But, I don't know, they're way too old. They're, like, almost two decades older <laughs> than the characters. Um, you know, it's 1936, Norma Shear, I think she was, like, 30-something. Yeah. And Leslie Howard, probably even older. And clearly it was a case of them you know, being cast for their star power. And I think maybe someone was hoping that no one would notice. But I watched that in high school as well. And uh, I wrote a paper on it from a, from a Shakespeare class. And my whole paper was like, I just can't believe, like, why can't they get married if they're like in their 30s? <laughs> yeah, great point. <laughs> um, so, and also like, it just, 
did not seem believable that a woman at 35 would be unmarried in, you know, Renaissance era or whatever, Verona. I'm like, she should have been married off like at least, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Otherwise it would have turned into the taming of the shrew. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, So would you, do you ever see the one from 2013 with Haley Steinfeld as Juliet? No, I've been warned away from that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never seen it either. The trailer looks pretty stilted. Um, it's just, there's a certain period of period movies from, like, the mid-2010s that just, like, always feel cold. Like, mm-hmm. the characters always look like they're freezing. Yeah, I think and, it has, I also watched the trailer, and it just looks so digital, you know? Yeah, yeah, right? Too. I mean, again, like, not to belabor the point, but, like, this 1968 film, like, it just feels so, like, immediate, even mm-hmm. having been, like, over almost 50 years old. Like, yeah, there's something so urgent and passionate about it. And partially part of that is that, like, everything feels so real. Mm-hmm. And real and intimate. And, yeah, it's, yeah. The, I mean, Haley Seinfeld's a great actress, but, um, I don't know, she looks pretty bad in this movie. I, I think it's... I, I think it's a lot to, sure. to kind of make a young actor do sometimes. Um, but yeah, and then there's a Bollywood version that I really like. Um, I am very eager to watch this. I saw, I saw you uh, talking about it, and yeah. I immediately ran to Letterboxd and put it on my watch list. So I yeah, yeah. It. It's a little hard to find, um, just because India is not great about home video releases. Mm. Um and uh, I think it's on like one streaming service, and not one. It's on. It's not on like Netflix or you know Hulu or Amazon right. Prime. It's on some like Indian exclusive one. Um, but I don't. Know, your maybe your library has it. So hey, it could um, be. Um, but also uh, maybe Drexel has it. Yeah, yeah. I have it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that I mean, it it looks really fun. I'm I'm very interested to see sort of a, a less anglo culture sort of take on it yeah no it, it, it's a really good it's a really good film um takes place in like the in like a fictional village in gujarat which is a state of india and the characters are aged up to like 20 but they're sort of like in like in succession of being like the mafia you know head sure so it makes more sense and they're there's even there's definitely a more like passionate sexual energy to it but it kind of makes sense because like it's kind of a like, repressive town so it would make sense that these like 20 year olds are kind of virgins waiting to you know get their hands on each other yeah i think i mean 20 i could still buy 20 you know 20, yeah like, yeah once we're getting into like 30 35 it, it starts to test my my limits a little bit but i you know i, I think that a 20 year old or whatever yeah, I, I yeah. Like that. and you know I, I i could see you know maybe a version where like them being that old and still kind of unmarried might be like a theme in the movie right a specific uh, it's addressed <laughs> yeah right um and I'm, I'm sure there are i'm sure there are other ones like less famous ones um but those five are always the ones that come up um i have seen both versions of west side story of course yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i did i will say i preferred the new one to the uh to the 61 version um, but I also, so it was funny while Google, I did Google Romeo and Juliet adaptations and discovered that in addition to the Lion King being Hamlet, apparently the Lion King two is Romeo and Juliet. 
I, I mean, I gotta watch that. I did not know that. Um, yeah, I watched it many, many years ago, um, and I'm like, now you know, it's like when uh, at the end of Usual Suspects, when he like everything clicks into place, and mm-hmm. I'm yeah, like yeah. seeing the lions be from the two different <laughs> families. Like, Whoa, that's very um, cool. And then uh, the other one that I have seen and I do like is um, Tromeo and Juliet, the trauma version. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's certainly very trauma, but I think that in a really interesting way, trauma and Shakespeare are very similar in terms of hitting the very sexualized humor and kind of using that for shock and playing up the bodiness and everything. And, you know, obviously Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy, but we've talked about how it is able to be flipped into a comedy. Sometimes I think that this is a good instance of it. I think that James Gunn having his hand in it does help to elevate it past, yeah. uh, you know, some of their lesser works that trauma has put out and does have, more to it. I also think that just using Shakespeare as a base is a really good start for developing a story. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. But I, I mean, if you're if you're like I'm interested in trauma, and I don't know where to start because it's not the most uh, easy to dive into. Uh, I think that Tromeo and Juliet is a really great place to uh, to sort of see if you enjoy the feel of it uh, while uh, not. Still having a little bit of, uh, you know, the old classics. Yeah. I'll check it out. I would love to watch that. Um, there's also uh, Nomeo and Juliet, which I don't think really bears, uh, needs to be discussed much, but it does exist, I guess. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I, I've said this many times in this podcast and probably a lot since I watched the movie, but this feels like the Roman Juliet. And I, I think, you know, I think this paired with the, you know, Baz Luhrmann one, I think both of those feel um, like just the uh, you know the adaptations that have the most lasting impact and the ones ones that really feel true to the text in their own way, whether it's by retaining the dialogue or having a more accurate sort of look to it um, and, and casting as well. So um, a great I, duo, a great duo. Yeah, and honestly, they make for a great double feature. I think that yeah. for me, I don't get tired of of the the dialogue and so i think that having both of those watched pretty close back to back was very satisfying for me seeing the way that they were different and were the same um they're just they're both great i i wouldn't sacrifice either of them for the world no no me neither um so any final thoughts on roman and juliet on shakespeare on uh you know adaptations or, or anything like that um, I guess my only real thing is that when it comes to older movies in general, maybe maybe the uh, the audience of this uh, podcast doesn't have this issue, but it, with horror, I tend to notice in particular that it can be kind of difficult to get people to look backwards past a certain point. Yeah. And I think that not only going back to the 60s, but being willing to be like, I'm interested in returning to Shakespeare, even though it was forced upon me in school, is worthwhile. And I think that this really is a fantastic story and a fantastic adaptation of it in particular. And if you watched this in high school and you were like, I didn't like it, maybe go back to it and give it another chance because I think you really might get something more out of it. 
I totally agree. Uh, It's also helpful to remember that Shakespeare was, you know, the blockbuster of his time, right? Like, his his plays were playing to the, you know, playing to the front rows for a lot of it. And, um, and I think his reputation as this, like, esoteric, you know, thematically intense, um, you know, you know, literary figure, I think, is kind of you know, not really helped by the fact that it's often is forced upon us in school um, without a lot of context. I mean, thankfully, like my teacher showed us a lot of these adaptations and we're able to like see them, uh, see how they're differently you know, crafted for, you know, for the time and for the intent. I mean, I wish I had been more of like a, you know, true cinema file back then where I could have appreciated that. But now as an adult, I'm really appreciating the different takes on, on Shakespeare. Um, and I, 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 you know, I, I really come back to this movie. I, I really feel that it's one to be watched, um, especially if you have trouble with, you know, looking back into older films, uh, because I think this one feels really immediate and modern in its own way, despite that it was made almost 50 years ago. And, um, and uh, also, not only is it a movie from the '60s, but also one that takes place in like you know the 1400s or whatever the, dec- the century is. Uh, and a part of that is also the um, you know the really you know lush and urgent cinematography by Pasqualino De Santis. Uh, I've not not mentioned him uh, on this episode, which is a mistake on my part. But I, I think uh, you know he and the rest of the Zeffirelli crew have really taken a very well-known, well-read, uh, or widely read story, um, that has been made fun of, that has been paid homage to, that has been referenced countless times, and have created, I think, a really defining feature film for everyone involved, and really a film that I think anyone who has any remote interest in Shakespeare should, should really seek out and, and watch and enjoy. Absolutely, yeah, you know, it's funny, I, uh, I uh, there's not to go on too big of a divergence right here at the end, but there was uh, there's <laughs> no, we love that there's a, a radical editing collective is what they call themselves called Racer Trash, and what they do is they take a movie, they break it apart into certain chunks, and then everybody edits their chunk, and then they stitch them back together, and and they all sort of fit within a certain theme, but they all have their own flair to it as well, and they did the Baz Luhrmann Romeo plus Juliet. And it's cool because they the styles tend to be very like synth wave and and glitch wave kind of stuff, and Baz Luhrmann Baz Luhrmann's movie really lends itself to that. But there's a moment in it where there's like a segment and they're like, this part's really hard to understand, and it's a lot of talking. And I was just like, this movie is so action packed, and like, and I don't think that the dialogue is that difficult to grab a hold on. That I, I just I, that pissed me off because I was like, man, this movie is, is, I think, a great introduction to people who are who are getting into Shakespeare. And it's not that difficult if that's something that people are worried about. Totally agree with that. Um, and I think I think people don't give themselves enough credit for, you know, what they can take in and understand. They also don't give movies a lot of credit for you know knowing their own audience. Um, yeah. I think. Both Put on of the these, subtitles. <laughs> I, I, I mean, honestly, like I, I mean, I always have subtitles on for, especially for a dialogue-heavy movie. Subtitles really help. Seeing it sometimes can help you piece it together more than hearing it only. Um, 
so with that, you know, I want to thank you, George, for coming on the podcast and picking such a wonderful film that I think has uh, only been enriched for me more, having rewatched it, and what I look forward to revisiting again and again. I kind of wish I had bought it instead of renting it, but uh, I will live with that regret until I buy the film. Um, so yeah, thank you, George. Uh, please let the listeners know where they can find you and all all about your truly wonderful podcast. Well, thank you so much. I had such a fun time on here, and uh, very grateful for the opportunity to uh, jabber about a movie that I probably would never get to talk about anywhere <laughs> else. So uh, very very grateful for that. You can listen to me talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least on the best little horror house in philly that's my show um manish has been on there we talked about the innocence and it was a lot of fun but we have talked about everything from grindhouse movies to the modern day art house uh and and everything in between we've had a lot of great comedians on a lot of great podcasters on um movies coming up include the mummy 99 and hellraiser so lots of really great stuff uh, incoming and in the in the past so uh yeah check me out little horror phl on twitter uh and the best little horror house in philly wherever you podcast amazing thank you yes i highly recommend going into the archives and listening to a lot of insightful smart people uh talk about some really amazing films and as, as i mentioned at the top of the episode george amazing host really thank you. welcoming and um uh, just, it's so fun to talk to you about, about movies and I'm glad I could talk to you about romance uh, because I, it's, a, it's always fun to like listen to podcasts and just kind of step out of their own you know podcast genre so uh, yeah. yeah really appreciate you um, listeners you can find me at vertigay314 that's V-E-R-T-I-G-A-Y 314 uh, also you can follow the podcast at thepodwu uh, please remember to rate and subscribe to the show to help you find it. And also, if you could drop a review, that'd be really helpful. Um, so next episode, we are talking about the Best Picture winning classic, The Apartment, uh, directed by Billy Wilder. So I have a really, uh, really great guest for that. So uh, please look out for that. And um, thanks for listening. <laughs>